like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, I'll be finishing up my coverage of Duandroid's Dream of Electric Sheep. Uh, so um, we've come to the climax of this novel. Uh, we have seen Rick Deckard retire a handful of androids, come to a spiritual crisis about his career and about his place in this world and about his relationship with androids. Um, yet, after buying a black goat, he gets called back into the job. Um, and he hesitates to return to the job to finish the finish the job of, of retiring the final three androids but after a brief encounter with mercer who tells him uh, very much in the style of the Bhagavad Gita, that he has his duty to do and he has his job to do and he should do it that basically a moral life is not possible what is left is just to go through life as best as best we can and this convinces him then to go to do his job first though he meets with rachel rosen and to test whether his uh, empathy for androids, which he tested for using an empathy test, extends to Rachel Rosen and extend, is really an extension of a sexual desire for them. He sleeps with Rachel Rosen and then they set off together to retire the final three androids. He hesitates before, uh, he ha- he's about to kill her, but he hesitates and then finally lets her go and uh, approaches the final three androids by himself. So that's where we left off at the end of chapter 17. In this episode, we'll look at chapters 18 through 22 and then talk about some of the overall themes of this novel and give my my final thoughts on it. Um, Chapter 18 is a very, very important chapter. But not for the character Rick Deckard so much. It's really the most important chapter for the character of J.R. Isidor, this chicken head, this special that's living in the apartments alone until he basically uh, runs into these android squatters who are going to use his house and use him to help them hide out against uh, a bounty hunter. There's a couple kind of uh, things that happen in this chapter. One is Isidore notices, observes these android women. It's the women who do it. The Roy Batty, the, the male android, is kind of busy with the defense. That's one thing. They see him. They see them systematically torture a spider. And we witness Isidore's reaction to that. The other thing that happens is they observe on the radio, they listen on the, what's on the TV. They watch on the TV, Buster Friendly and his friendly friends deliver an expose which reveals that Wilbur Mercer, the person people see when they hold the empathy box and, and experience this trudge up the hill, pummeled by rocks, you know, facing their death, that this is actually an elaborate, uh, like, set. And, he, and Wilbur Mercer was just an actor and that every you know that's basically the whole mercer movement is a fake is a is a con is a scam and this is all exposed by by buster friendly in a in a big kind of expose type of type of television program so um as chapter 18 opens they're waiting for the buster friendly and the friendly friends announcement it's something all the androids know about rachel knows about it and these escaped androids know about it. it turns out that they're all kind of working in cahoots they know about each other and that even beyond that, Buster Friendly himself is, is an android, as we'll learn in this chapter. Um, so while they're waiting for the Buster Friendly announcement, uh, Isidore is moving Pris's stuff into his apartment. The plan essentially is to, to keep Pris with Isidore and then the married couple, Roy and 
Bergman Batty will will be somewhere else, and they'll kind of coordinate and work together to try to stop the bounty hunter. So Isidore finds a spider while they're doing this, and he shows it to them. And now a spider is very rare; they're almost extinct. They actually fetch quite a bit of money in as a, as a pet. Um, but what is what's special about a spider is that they're the solitary hunter. I think earlier in the novel. Deckard even mentions the spider as an example of the type of solitary hunter that's akin to the android. They're very much like an android in that they don't have empathy, they're just carnivorous. And in fact, Deckard at one point imagines that only car- car- like carnivores can't have empathy. Only a herbivore or maybe an omnivore who lives ethically can, can have the, the possibility of empathy, right? There, there's a kind of this... Um, I think there's actually levels of empathy we're exposed to here. One is kind of the empathy for only oneself right that's what rachel says she has then there's maybe a kind of a group empathy which even androids can achieve and then there's the universal empathy called for by mercer and mercerism Um, i think most of us are are perhaps capable of group empathy showing we're capable of empathy but we haven't yet got to the stage of universal empathy right it really took mercerism and it took the war to lead to that next stage where people can even have this empathy for for spiders so what the women do it's prison it um Igmar, they actually start, they, they're curious. They just have this curiosity, do spiders need eight legs? Maybe they can get by with four. So they start to cut off its legs. So while this torture of the spider goes on, Buster Friendly is on the air giving his results. And I won't go into the details, but basically it, they expose that Wilbur Mercer is an actor, that he's not only an actor, that he's like a drunk actor, the worst kind, like working for, for drinking money. Right, and all the the mountain and every, and the rocks are all staged. They're just um, props. And so basically, he reveals that Mercer is an actor. He experienced in this stage, and 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 therefore the whole peer is to discredit Mercerism, right? And the trick here that Dick is playing with is that Mercerism is something deeper than its origins. It doesn't really rely on the founder, right? And of course, we are immediately thinking of Christianity here, right? And the the question of the historical Jesus, right? If Jesus is not a historical figure, if Jesus never existed, if he was just uh, something created by Paul or the or later f- Christian followers, does it really matter? It, it probably wouldn't. Christianity would still live on, even if it could be proved historically that Jesus was a, not a historical figure, right? I'm someone who probably doubts the historicity of Jesus a little bit, but nevertheless, it's it's hard to imagine that a religion of two billion people, uh, with so many different branches and so many different theological aspects and accents would disappear simply because of one report or one expose, right? And now mercerism is even a deeper experience because it encompasses everyone, right? When you hold those empathy boxes, those the empathy box handles, you don't just feel empathy with mercer. You don't just feel the blows. You feel the suffering of everyone else who's holding those handles at the time. You feel their joy, right? So it's actually a broader collective experience. And mercer is a prop. That's the point. Mercer doesn't even have to be there. He absolutely is a prop anyways for the users, for the Mercerites, for the humans who engage in that. And this is something that Isidore is smart enough to actually confront the androids on. However, after the report is, is revealed, the androids are actually quite giddy. They think they finally got him and they finally undermine the one thing that the humans had over them, which was empathy. Right, and we already know that Batty has already been trying to elicit an empathic response in androids using drugs. Here's what Isidore says about it: Mercer isn't finished, and then he thinks. 
something ailed the three androids, something terrible. The spider, he thought, maybe it had been the last spider on Earth, as Roy Batty said. And the spider is gone. Mercer is gone. He saw the dust in the ruin of the apartment as it lay spreading out everywhere. He heard the kipple coming and the final disorder of all forms, the absence which would win out. It grew around him as he stood holding the empty ceramic cup. The cupboards of the kitchen creaked and split, and he fell the floor beneath his feet give. Reaching out, he touched the wall. His hand broke the surface. Gray particles trickled and hurried down, fragments of plaster resembling the radioactive dust outside. And then he starts kind of going nuts and starts mashing up the place, breaking his apartment, and the androids kind of freak out about him doing that. He seems to have some sort of panic attack, and he starts to hallucinate. He hallucinates asking for Mercer to appear to him, and he imagines he's in a place called like the tomb world. This is part of the Mercerite experience that one, one experiences with him, kind of the, this experience of death. And he, he feels himself there. And he sees a couple of things in the tomb world. He sees Mercer, and he has a conversation with Mercer, and he, and he sees the spider alive and well. But Mercer, in the vision, admits to him that he is a fraud. He says, they're sincere. The research is genuine. From their standpoint, I am an elderly, retired bit player named Al Jerry. All of it. Their disclosure is true. They interviewed me at home, at my home, as they, as they claim. I told them whatever they wanted to know, which was everything. It was all true. They did a good job, and from their standpoint, Buster Friendly's disclosure was convincing. But they'll have trouble understanding why nothing has changed, because you're still here and I am still here. Mercer indicated with a sweep of his hand the barren, rising hillside, the familiar place. I lifted you from the tomb world just now, and I'll continue to lift you until you lose interest and want to quit. But you will have to stop searching for me because I'll never stop searching for you. And that's, uh, that's, uh, that's how the chapter basically ends, is with Isidore's experience of, of Mercer. Now, interestingly, the only two characters who experience Mercer directly in kind of a vision state are Deckard and Isidore, our two main characters. And our two main characters who are, are kind of our case studies for the dealing with the experience of empathy and humanity in a world in which humanity is dying and humanity is being in a plus sense replaced by and life is being replaced by the artificial actually right at the last moment of the chapters the alarm goes off announcing the arrival of the bounty hunter so chapter 19 is our is essentially our climax of the bounty hunter aspect of the novel right that that's all that blade runner is right is this the chase, the, the hunting of the androids. It's actually a fairly small part of the novel itself. And, you know, this last three, it's, it's almost like, for Deckard, it's an afterthought. It's a, it's a drudgerous extension to his day that he already thought he had ended. He thought he was actually going to retire, and he gets kind of pulled back in. Um, now, when Chapter 19 opens, Isidore is found holding the empathy box, and that seems to explain his, his hallucinations and the experience he was having is that he was holding the empathy box during his, his fit of sorts. Um, but they wake him up and they get him out of it because they want him to go to the door and meet Deckard because the plan is that he'll meet Deckard and pretend just to be a Sidor and then the androids can jump him or escape or whatever. And he goes out in the hall, right, and doesn't see Deckard at all. And he finds himself holding a spider. So is this the spider that the androids previously had mutilated, somehow revived? Is it a different spider? That is not really answered in the text. Um, it's left ambiguous, of course, as Dick is apt to do. But again, it doesn't matter, as Dick writes. He would never know, but anyhow, it was alive. It crept about within his closed hand, not biting him, as had most small spiders. 
As with most small spiders, the mandibles cannot puncture human skin. So what matters is that's alive. What matters is that he's holding something living, such a rare thing in, in the life of someone like J.R.E. Sidor. So he goes out in the hall. He starts looking around. He's supposed to look for Deckard, and he finds him. He runs into Deckard, and they chat a bit. He talks about his job and his, you know, his situation, although he's unwilling to give up the location of the androids. And like Deckard, Isidor has empathy for, for the androids. He knows that Deckard's here to kill him. He fears Deckard. He's kind of actually had an image of Deckard built up from earlier chapters when Pris first mentioned that they're, under, they're being chased by a bounty hunter. But, uh, you know, he doesn't really want to help them. And this forces Decker to go into the building and search floor by floor, room by room, thousands of, of, of con apps to find out, you know, where, where the androids are. He's got technology that helps him speed it up, though. So he's doing this. He's going floor by floor searching using his technology. And while he's there, he has a vision of Mercer. And Mercer tells him... You know, to go through with this job, but to watch out because there's one behind you. Pris, and it turns out to be Pris Stratton that's behind him. He sees Pris, and of course, Pris is the one that looks just like Rachel Rosen. He had failed in the previous chapter to kill Rachel Rosen, and he doubted whether he could kill Pris. But he does. He does it pretty quickly. It's not. It's not much of a a big issue. It's it's almost um, a banal event. He just fires and, and and kills Pris Stratton. You know, pretty much within moments of seeing her. And even after he shoots him, it's, it's not Pris or Rachel uh, explode. It's, quote, the android bursts and parts of it flew. He covered his face and looked again. Looked and saw the laser tube, which had carried, rolled away back onto the stairs. The metal tube belts downstairs, step by step. The sound echoing and diminishing and slowing. The hard one of the three, Mercer had said, end quote. So he's done the hardest part. He's killed the one that he might have an emotional connection to. And it turns out that emotional connection was fairly, fairly weak. Um, so then he goes to the door. He poses as J.R.E. Sudor. He just is very quickly able to adapt to his st stammering and his awkward um, speech patterns. And Sudor said enough to, to give some private information that, that only Sudor would have known, like where he works for. And so he gets them to open the door. When he opens the door, they shoot at him, and this gives him the license then to kill them without using the empathy test, and then he dies. And it's very quickly the, the chapter ends with, with the three dead androids. Turned out it wasn't that hard for, for Rick Deckard. So um, what does this tell us about his character? What does this tell us about the nature of his empathy for, for androids? I mean, all he's really thinking about this time is he could finally go home and rest. I mean, it's... He's really exhausted by this point. He was end, ended his day. He bought the goat. He was with his wife. He gets this call. He goes to a hotel, sleeps with Rachel Rosen, then goes off on this mission. You know, it's, it's like probably almost morning, right? When he finally accomplishes all these things. So, but it's done. And he's just glad to be, be done with it and be done with his job. Uh, in chapter 20, he calls his boss, Harry, Harry Bryant, and he's actually pretty famous. Well, he's potentially very famous now because he's done something no one else has done, and that is retire six Nexus 6 androids in one day. Um, in fact, two were by that other guy, Wretch, but he took credit for them. Um, the previous record was like seven or eight, but they were like the old crappy models. So he just prepares to go home after talk calling Bryant, and... He offers Isidore a place in his apartment because J.R. really has no friends now and nowhere to stay and 
his room is his room is full of dead androids. But Jr. Asidor is afraid to to stay with with a bounty hunter who he does fear at some very fundamental level, and so that's the end of our story of Jr. Asidor. Um, but so his arc is is really one about the perseverance of empathy despite the exposure of Mercer as a fake, despite the exposure of his friends as fake, um, despite being used, he still is able to insist on empathy to the end. That's the important story of, of Isidor, it seems to me. Despite the realization that he's Kipple, despite the realization that he has no future, all, these, all this bleakness, but he's still able to hold together his commitment to his basic humanity. So Deckard goes home, and Iran is there, his wife is there, and announces the bad news that the goat has been killed. And obviously the murderer is, is Rachel. Uh, Rachel's the one who knew. The, Rachel had the motive, and Rachel was the one who, who knew uh, Deckard had a goat. And this, again, is just one more reminder that these androids are really without mercy. They're heartless. They're soulless. They, really, they might have subjectivity again. They might have goals. They might want to live, right? They, they have all those things. All those things that the movie, the Blade Runner film, say about him, say about them, it's true, but they really lack the empathy. They, they lack this ability to really be human. They connect with one another. They lack that, that ability to live collectively and communally and to share experiences and share feelings. And more proof of that is that Rachel would just so viciously kill something that meant so much to to. Deckard and, and Iran. And Deckard almost immediately leaves. So he extends his day just a little bit longer, thinking he's going to go basically to die. Here's his final thoughts at the end of chapter 20. Once he thought I would have seen stars years ago, but now it's only dust. No one's seen a star in years, at least not from Earth. Maybe I'll go where I can see stars, he said to himself as the car gained velocity and altitude. He headed away from San Francisco towards the uninhabited desolation of the north to a place where no living thing would go, not unless it felt the end had come. The suggestion here is he's really going there to, to, to die or just to waste away. So in chapter 21, he goes to this place, and it turns out it's like on the border between Oregon and California. I don't know why it's such a wasteland. My memory of that place is kind of nice, but maybe there was fighting there, or maybe it's just was so devastated by the war that it's... It's, it's, useful. It's, it's just a wasteland now. He tries to call Holden. Holden was the, the bounty hunter that originally had the job to retire the eight androids, um, but he doesn't get any success in reaching out to them. Now he steps out of the car and begins walking, and he starts to have a Mercer-like experience where he's climbing up a hill, rocks are falling down on him, seems they're kind of falling naturally, but he's having that experience where they're hitting him and striking him, and he realizes he's having Mercer's experience, the very same experience that we were just told is a fake, right? But it's being experienced really in a real way for Deckard. And then he sees a figure that he thinks is, is Mercer. And then it turns out that it's only his shadow, right? There, there's some, on some level, there's like an organic merger between Mercer and the experience of Mercer and Rick Deckard. And later on, he's actually gonna tell the secretary at the police station that, that he essentially is, he is Mercer, right? So he's, and again, this is why the fact that the Mercer imagery is fake doesn't really matter. What matters is this subject, the, this, the collective experience people have and people's subjective relationships with, with Mercer. 
that Mercer's already merged into each of the Mercerites' experiences, into really into all human humans. So after this experience, he vid calls work, and he starts to have a really strange conversation with the secretary that goes on for a few pages. Part of it is she's like praising him for his, you know, the, the work he did. Like he retired the six androids and he, he's going to be famous and he's going to get a commendation and all that. But Decker just talks about the goat and she doesn't know anything about the goat. And she talks about Wilbur Mer He talks about Wilbur Mercer. And she thinks, you're just exhausted, Decker. She says, obviously you did too much. What you need is bed rest, Mr. Deckard. You're our best bounty hunter, the best we've ever had. I'll tell Inspector Bryant when he comes in. You can go home and go to bed. You're in dreadful shape. And he replies, it's because of my coat, not the androids. Rachel was wrong. I didn't have any trouble retiring them. And the special was wrong, too, about my not being able to fuse with Mercer again. The only one who was right is Mercer. It's strange. I had the absolute, utter, complete, real illusion that I had become Mercer and people were lobbing rocks at me. But on the way, you experience it when you hold the handles of the empathy box. When you use an empathy box, you feel you're with Mercer. The difference was I wasn't with anyone. I was alone. Which is how we imagine Mercer experiences the hike up the hill, right? The people who hold the empathy box share that experience whether it's a prop or not you know that experience is is real to millions right and but mercer experiences alone right and of course you know christ experiences his journey to the cross alone you know his final words is being forsaken and all that we don't have to get into the christian mythology here obviously it's being alluded to though so he basically uh decides you know, he's not sure what he's going to do. He thinks, okay, maybe I'll just go home. And he picks up the phone to call his wife, and the chapter ends. Now, in the final chapter of the book, chapter 22, while he's going up to call his wife, he sees a toad. He sees a toad, which is Mercer's favorite special animal, right? When we, you actually have to go back to, like, chapter 2 or something to see Mercer's backstory when Isidore is holding the, the empathy box. We get some Mercer's background and he would like raise, in his backstory, he would raise toads from the dead or something. And this is why he was originally persecuted. Um, so he sees this toad and finds out, he looks in the book and he finds out that this type of animal is actually extinct. And so he thinks, you know, he's going to carefully bring it back. People who kind of restore these, who find extinct animals, you know, get a big reward. So there's that, that that's good for him. But he just thinks now I have an animal, right? It's, he, he has a real animal. And it's, it's kind of in the mud, and he, he carefully puts it in a box and, and takes it home with him, right? He gets home, and Iran is there with the mood organ, basically about to, you know, trying to figure out what to do with it, right? She, she usually needs Deckard's leadership to decide which setting to set the mood organ at. And Deckard then shows her the frog. And while he's doing this, it's revealed that it's an electric frog. They see the control panel. They see that it's, it's not a real frog. And then he just gives up and goes to sleep. His final words about himself is, you were right this morning when you said I'm nothing but a crude cop with crude cop hands. They have a little bit debate about the morality of, of, of what he's done in his career and his profession, but his, his basically closing thoughts about himself is that he, he's just a killer, he's just a bounty hunter, which is how Iran identified him right away in the story. Iran does have some commentary, though, on why Mercer in this vision would have told Deckard to go ahead with his job, even if it's immoral. And she says, the killers that found Mercer in the 16th year, 
when they told him he couldn't reverse time and bring things back to life again. So now all he can do is move along with life, going where it goes, to death. And the killers throw their rocks. It's, who they're, it's, it's they who's doing it, still pursuing them, all of us actually. Did one of them cut your cheek? Where is it you've been bleeding? So that, that's Iran giving this kind of theological explanation for Mercer's argument here that, you know, empathy doesn't mean we don't continue to go through life as best we can in the role we have, you know, just just sludging on until death. That's the symbolism of the march up the hill to death, right, uh, while being pelted by, by rocks. I think essentially what's happening here is Deckard is is coming to terms with a world in which the boundary between the fake and the real is is evaporating very quickly around him and and there's not much you can do in that except sort of move on there there's they can't really be resisted it's just something that has to be embraced and accepted after Deckard goes to sleep Iran puts the the the, the toad away and calls up a electric pet shop and buys electric flies to give the toad a more realistic experience. So I think she buys like one pound of electric flies. And, and that's the end of the novel. That's, that's how it ends. Quite a, quite a bleak ending. So um, I love this novel. It's, it's, it's one of Dick's greatest. I, I, it's not my favorite. It's not the, the number one novel I go to. It's a bit too bleak. I like the comedic Dick a little bit. I, I like... Um, and I like sometimes when he's a little bit more overtly political. The, the kind of the theological aspects of it, the interpretation of this novel is a bit um, open, though, and I like that about it. I mean, we can do different things with Mercer. We can do different things with the concept of Kipple. We can do different things with this kind of human technology divide. So it's, it's a more open reading than some of his earlier works. Uh, in that sense, it's like his later works, but it's also a very grounded work. It's grounded in... in and actually some pretty powerful political realities, like uh, the fact that there are people left behind by our economy, the, the fact that there are, that this, this boundary between technology and humanity is getting more complex and more vague. I mean, the whole geography of this novel is essentially a geography of the slum and the gated community, right? The Mars, the, the planets, the colonies are kind of the gated community where the elite the rich, the prosperous, the healthy can go. The people who are left behind are then are, are literally the, the leftovers. I think that's a very powerful symbol of 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 the world we live in and and the world we're increasingly uh, inhabiting, like a world of slums and gated communities. Um, so I don't know. I, I anyways, it's a good one. It's a good novel. Do read it if you haven't read it yet. I, I assume you have. So. Let me, let me know what you think about it. You know, I probably got a lot wrong here and misinterpret things. And, or maybe you have different points of view about what Dick was trying to say in this novel. I did my best with it. I think, I think we're increasingly going to get to novels where the interpretation is a little bit less obvious and, 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 and clear. And he gets a little bit more fuzzy with his, his meaning. Like our next novel is Ubik. Uh, and that one is, is a real challenge to try to interpret. But I still think I can find some major themes here. And I've, I've picked 11 themes that I think, uh, you know, are spoken of in this novel. These are all, in a sense, themes that Dick looks at in other works to various degrees. Um, the big one, of course, is the human-machine divide uh, or the general issue of transhumanism. 
Uh, Dick, of course, is very skeptical of transhumanism. He, he's very fearful of, of allowing automation or technology too much shape the human life. Uh, the whole novel, really, at the heart of it, is about what it means to be human. And, and he creates a very firm line between what humanity is and what machines are. He doesn't muddle that line. A lot of transhumanist writing, a lot of cyberpunk writing, a lot of uh, science fiction these days muddles that line between humanity and, and the machine. Right? Is the robot morally human? Is, can we become robotic? Um, this is something that Dick actually plays with. He addresses this openly, right? in, especially in the early chapters. Like, like maybe there are schizoids who won't pass the empathy test, right? But in the end, I think Dick is really insisting that there is a definable humanity. And we have to stick to it. We can't turn our back on it, right? And even when we do horrible things, even when we're vicious to each other, even when we're cruel, right? We are not machines. And, and I think that's the heart of it. Um, now, more broadly, I think the novel is about coming to terms with technology. That's, Deckard, that's Descartes' arc. To some degree, it's Isidore's arc too, a little bit less so, but he comes to realize that the people around him are androids and that he's been betrayed in a way. Um, and that things he had faith in, like Mercer's a fake, uh, Buster Friendly's a fake, and he has to come to terms with that. Um, it's more a profound story with Deckard because he, he doesn't just realize, he always knows that there's fake things in the world, but you know, he starts to really understand his relationship with them in, in new and very profound ways. So this is the heart of the novel, it seems to me. Other themes in the story are, one is corporate power. We actually have two corporations referred to here. One is the Rand Corporation, which is mentioned like right away in the first or second chapter as the co company that worked with the government during the wartime. So they're kind of the cause of the war. But then you got the Rosen Corporation, which is doing things that um, really for profit, like making androids, making them better, even though it frustrates the, the police. This conflict between the Rosen Corporation and the state, represented by Descartes, is really a big part of, of the story. It very much feels like a cyberpunk novel, especially in the, the nature of the Rosen Corporation and that brief mention of the Rand Corporation. It's like how corporations are presented in those kind of cyberpunk works. Um, work is such a big theme of Philip Dick's. We'll definitely see that in Galactic Pod Healer, which is coming up. Uh, here, work is not really analyzed directly. We have people who go to work, I guess. But more, it's really about work and morality. And I kept thinking about the Bhagavad Gita, this Hindu epic tale about uh, the hero who doesn't want to be a murderer, doesn't want to kill, doesn't want to go to war, but is told by the gods that he has to follow his dharma. That's kind of what happens to Deckard in, in his meeting with Mercer. right? So, but the question is, should work... Be, be moral? Do we have a duty to choose moral work? Deckard at one point in the story thinks, yes, he's going to actually quit when he no longer can stomach the morality of his, his job. He wants to have a new, new career. So um, what else we got here? Uh, oh, religion, especially new religious movements. Dick's beginning to become more and more interested in new religious movements at the end of his career. His last published novel is about a new religious movement. Here we have Mercerism, right? It's not new for him. He wrote a short story about it called The Black Box, but that's more about the politics of a new religious movement. This is actually our best look at the theology of this new religious movement that's coming to terms with a world that's been fundamentally changed, right? It seems the old religions, Christianity, Islam, whatever, are not capable of handling the world after the war. And it took a new religion based on really a, a, this very human experience of, 
of collectic empathic experiences. We saw that also in counterclap world, of course, where you have the, the Utiti movement, where they're also trying to go after that collective experience. Um, we got a lot of popular culture here. I really like the conflict between like Buster Friendly and his friendly friends and the Mercer experience, both collective in a way, but one's artificial and and not very real, and you just kind of get these recycled plots, and you get told what to believe. With Mercerism, you're actually experiencing something directly. But, um, you know, it's completely unrealistic that we just have one channel with one show on all the time, Buster Friendly, but uh, Dick definitely is trying to say that Buster Friendly is, you know, really a bad type of uh, influence on us. Because it's it's completely artificial experience. He doesn't seem to like TV very much. But that's what Buster Friendly is. He's essentially the TV, the boob tube that people just watch to 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 tone out. Um, next, we can talk about the frontier here. The, the frontier is not ever visited. We never see it. It's only talked about. Um, but we don't have here a progressive frontier. We don't have a frontier where humanity is being remade. It's just humanity is being moved. And only like the best... The, the non-specials are being moved to the frontier. But it's kind of, it, it seems to be a very banal extension of, of what Earth used to be. The best evidence of this is that they want these old comic books, or old, not comic books so much, but old pulp fiction magazines about science fiction from the 30s. And that's how Pris and the baddies are, are making money, is they're trying to smuggle these things back to, to, back to Mars because there's a big demand for them. Because Mars itself is so boring that people have to, you know, spend their time reading these these fictions to actually get any excitement out of their this grand human adventure. Uh, another theme is Kipple, uh, of course. Kipple being this trash that just sort of accumulates. It's essentially entropy. Um, but I think an important transition here is that the mention of the concept of living Kipple or, or human Kipple. Everyone on Earth is human Kipple. They're sterile. They're they have no future. They can't move to the frontiers. They're dying out. The planet's dying. They only cling to each other through mercerism, but they are, they're the leftovers. They're the trash. And the world, humanity's moved on to the stars at this point. It may not be very interesting, but they've moved on into the stars nonetheless, leaving behind the people on Earth. So Kipple is then a metaphor for the, the discarded waste of, 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 of the society, the people the world no longer needs. Uh, false fronts is uh, here as well. We have, of course, characters posing as things they're not, especially androids. We have the false police station, the fake police station. We have uh, people who pretend to be cruel to androids but really have feelings for them, like Deckard. Um, we have a relationship that, in the beginning, we think we have a typical Philip Dick relationship based on hatred, institutionalized hatred, but we learn later on that actually this is a relationship that's quite loving and and Deckard and Iran really care about each other and have uh, one of the fair more strong relationships in any of his novels actually so a whole lot of false fronts maybe the most interesting and the deepest to analyze is the the fake police station run by androids depression is a theme Iran is is depressed throughout much of the the novel even though it only was all said in just one day she spends much of it depressed. Um, she needs a mood organ to basically get through her life. She stays at home. She watches TV. 
and this just exacerbates her depression. Deckard, uh, his emotions change, but he spends a big chunk of the novel depressed as well and uncertain about himself. So it's not a novel of mental illness the way some others were, but it is. it does deal with themes of, of depression. Um, marriage is dealt with as well. Um, pretty much, we can say this for every one of Philip Dick's novels, that it's a novel about marriage in a way. And again, I, I think the marriage here is presented as one of the stronger ones. It, it endures quite a lot of tragedy in one short day. Um, but it, you know, we, we, we start off pretty pessimistic about this relationship, but by the end we, we realize that this is one that, that might make it. We also have other relations. We got the false marriage of the baddies, which is just kind of a, a pretend marriage for, for cover. We have the we have adultery of sort, right? Deckard has sex with a with an android woman at one point. And he says he would do it again, probably. And then, I guess connected to that is sex, uh, particularly sex with machines, the intimate relationship with the machines. And now we, of course, live in an era where, essentially, I'm not even thinking about the sex robot, which are which exist. You can get sex dolls and, and now even sex robots. And I know people are developing these things. But with just internet pornography, I mean, people can constantly have sex with... Um, the inorganic um, as often as they want so Deckard having sex with with Rachel Rosen is, is there's a lot to think about in that um, the sex appeal of the inorganic perhaps of course these are they look like humans but um, you know, all the way back to stories like uh, is it who wrote it I forget who wrote it but uh, Helen Alloy that story where you see uh, sexual attraction to machinery is, is something that's in the DNA of science fiction by this point. But that's here too. So those are the themes that I think are most important in Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Uh, again, a great novel, um, but uh, read it if you haven't read it yet. Tell me, but let me know what you think of Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Give me your thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but that'll be it. So I think we've got a, f a couple of short stories to deal with, the short stories of 1968, and then, then on to the novels of 1969. There's two of them. There's Ubik, or Ubik, and, and Galactic Popular. So I'm looking forward to rereading Ubik and, and giving you my thoughts on that. So that'll be coming up. Uh, thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. You must you you will find peace and contentment forever if you